it's a lot easier to change policy than culture. And culture will kill policy every time. So if you don't have the right leadership and you're not constantly pushing the organization in the right direction, it is so easy to backslide. From C Street, a strategic advisory firm helping CEOs and C-suites achieve maximum value, this is Word on the C Street a show where influential leaders reflect on the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and share their perspectives on the defining challenges and opportunities of our time. Hi, I'm John Hennis, founder and CEO of C Street Advisory Group. Welcome to Word on the C Street. Today, I'll be speaking with Matt Johnson, founding partner at Johnson, Shapiro, Sluitt & Cole, LLP. I am also thrilled that Matt is on C Street's Board of Advisors. Matt is one of the top entertainment lawyers in the country, representing, among others, Oprah Winfrey, Jamie Foxx, and the Obamas. In this episode, you'll hear Matt discuss why he founded a different type of law firm, one grounded in social activism, and how his involvement with Los Angeles' police commission shaped his perspective on police reform. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Word on the C Street. As we jump into this, I need to ask about your new firm. You just recently started Johnson, Shapiro, Sluit, and Cole, LLP. I want to just get a sense of what made you want to go start your own firm. How are things going? Would love to hear about what you're doing. Oh, thanks. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And I have to say the last six months, or I guess now it's eight months, we launched January 1st, have been absolutely fantastic. So much fun. We launched this firm not for the typical reasons. The financial considerations were really not a part of it. Control really wasn't a a huge part of it. It was really for other reasons. I was fortunate enough to start at my old firm just a few years out of law school. It was really considered the top firm in the media and entertainment space. And I was a decade younger than the next youngest person in the apartment. I really got to learn from the best. And I went from being the new kid to being a partner to being a managing partner for almost 10 years. It was a great experience, but there really was just a personal void that was missing. Being a great media and entertainment attorney was only one thing that I aspired to be. Having an impact in the philanthropic and political space, just really trying to make the world a better place was equally important. Myself and my three founding partners, I knew who I've known for a long time, all viewed the world similarly. And what we really did was we set out to start a law firm that really merged those two things. Uh, So it really wasn't so much a business decision as really a soul-fulfilling decision. And that's why we set out to do what we did. And we're really excited about what we're building. So when you say you set out to merge those two things, how are you merging the practice of representing all of these celebrities, media companies with the political and philanthropic focus? First of all, I think we recognize that by virtue of our positions, the clients that we represent, the access that we have really to anyone at any time puts us in a unique position. We have clients that care deeply about a lot of issues. So one of the first hires that we made and one of our most critical was hiring a chief engagement officer. And that's a position that none of our competitors have. And so between her and her deputy, their full-time job is thinking about how can we engage in the world to make it a better place and how can we help our clients engage in the world to make it a better place. 
And the woman that we hired, Hannah Lincolnhawker, she had done this job for one of the talent agencies. She's extremely well-connected. She's a co-founder of the LA Women's Collective, which is one of the most important organizations promoting female political candidates. It's really been terrific having that resource full-time dedicated to those issues, to seeing how the impact that we can have. Is there a lot of crossover between what you do and what an agent or a talent manager would do, or is it totally separate? I think in our, you know, just the way we function day to day, there's a lot of overlap between what agents do, what managers do, and what lawyers do. Our role as lawyers, we tend to spend more time on the actual structuring of deals, negotiating the deals, strategizing about the deals. We're not out there sourcing opportunities necessarily. Generally, it's not like our job to make those introductions. We do from time to time. But that's more the sourcing of work is more of an agent's job. A manager's job is more of, is this the right opportunity at the right time? And then our primary job is the structuring and negotiating of the deals. Now, we get involved in all those other things, too. And they also get involved in the negotiating and structuring also. So there is overlap. But in terms of areas of primary responsibility, that's how it breaks down. Now, when you layer in the philanthropic and political work, That has really traditionally been something separate. And we might have been aware of what clients are doing, but they might have been leaning more on their publicists. Some of the agencies have some of those resources, but it's not like a revenue generating opportunity, which is why law firms, they weren't expected to have it. It would just be a cost center, so they didn't have it. We didn't do it because we were looking for another revenue stream. We were looking at it as a way just to have greater impact and leverage what we cared about. So in 2008, you became the youngest person named one of the Hollywood Reporter's 100 power lawyers in the entertainment industry. How at such an early age do you think you got to be so successful and so influential and so prominent? (laughs) Well, I can say I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about or reflecting on that. I've always been, and probably this might be a reason why, I've always been more focused on the future less about what I have accomplished and more about what I want to accomplish. There's no substitute for hard work, but it can't just be about hard work. You have to be smart about how you work. There's a lot of people that work really, really hard and kind of stay in place. I've always had like sort of an innate curiosity. I've always wanted to learn new things. I like that feeling of being a little bit afraid of not knowing something, not knowing how to do something being in that uncomfortable situation. And a lot of people just like, they like to live in their comfort zone, do things that they know they're great at. Whereas I actually like to put myself in situations where I'm learning something new, I'm doing something new. And I think when you do that, that creates a lot of opportunities. I think also early on, I had the benefit of being in an environment that gave me the ability to kind of follow my interests and really be entrepreneurial and think outside of the box and help do things for clients that maybe other people weren't really thinking of because they hadn't been done before. So thinking about stepping out of your comfort zone, you were the president of the LA Police Commission. How did that come about? And was that feeling outside of your comfort zone? Yeah, I took on that role in 2015, but you really have to go back to 2014, which was really the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. You had many horrific killings, but it really started with Eric Garner in New York, Michael Brown, 
Tamir Rice. Those three incidents happened in pretty quick succession. And that really started a conversation that I had with the mayor, Eric Garcetti, who was a good friend of mine. I had served on his transition team. We had known each other very well, do a lot of the philanthropic work I had done in the city. And he recognized that there was a moment to make some fundamental changes in police in L.A. And L.A. had certainly come a long way from the uprising that happened in 92 after the acquittal of the police officers in the Rodney King situation. But the department certainly wasn't where it needed to be. And L.A. has a unique structure in its police commission. There's no other police commission in the world, let alone the country, that has as much power that the LA does. And it really goes back to the fact that we had a federal consent decree and two major uprisings. So the police commission is responsible for all policy and is responsible for reviewing every officer involved shooting to determine whether the officers acted in policy or not. It's super time consuming. It's very stressful. But I think as you're seeing now where people are moving past George Floyd, things quickly get out of people's consciousness. And Eric really recognized that. And he said, look, the time to do something is now. I don't have anybody on the police commission who I have a relationship that I have with you. And I know that you will dig in and get some things done. We spent a lot of time talking about the things I wanted to do. And I wanted to make sure that I had his full commitment because none of these things are politically easy to do. And you 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 see it now, like with the George Floyd Policing Act not being able to get done, which really didn't even go half as far as what we were able to accomplish in L.A., All of these things, there's so many entrenched interests working against you, but we got a lot of stuff done. I mean, we fundamentally changed training. We required de-escalation training. We required training on dealing with people with mental illness. We instituted implicit bias training. We required every police officer to have access to tasers and beanbag shotguns. So they had less than lethal options. They didn't always have to resort to deadly force. We changed the use of force policy to make it much more restrictive around when they could use deadly force. We put cameras. We're the first major police department in the country to put cameras on every officer. More controversially, we released footage of every officer involved shooting to the public. So there's no department that's as transparent um, as we are. And the results really spoke for themselves. And we were able to reduce officer involved shootings by almost 50% um, in a very short period of time. But as you see, This work is never done. And I know the police commission today is working really hard. And it's a lot easier to change policy than culture. And culture will kill policy every time. So if you don't have the right leadership and you're not constantly pushing the organization in the right direction, it is so easy to backslide. I know you're involved in the mayor's race in L.A., I want to hear a little bit about, but I have a question first, focus on the policing. So I was actually with Cory Booker and he got asked a question about the far left. He was saying, we've got to start moving more to the middle. We've got to find a way to bring people together. There's a lot of opportunity to do it, even if we, even if Republicans and Democrats disagree on some real fundamental things. There are places where we can get bipartisanship and start bringing the country together, which we have to do. And one of the examples he gave of not doing that is he said, you know, when the far left started talking about defunding the police, he said, if you go into the black communities after a shooting and say, do you want to defund the police? He said, the answer is no, we want to stop getting shot, but we want to be safe. How do you look at that? I'm in complete agreement with Corey about that. And we've had many conversations about this very issue. 
you know, and it's not even just after a shooting, it's every day. The people that actually live in these communities, they know they need policing. What they want is fair and equitable policing. <laughs> they don't want to have police brutality. They don't want to deal with preemptive stops. They just want to go about living their lives and have good police like anybody wants. I think if you look at post-George Floyd, there's a major missed opportunity. Forget about what happened on a federal level, but on many local levels. So much more change could have happened if there were sensible reforms that were discussed, as opposed to things like get rid of the police department altogether, defund the police. Those are not sensible reforms. We're not going to create safe communities if we do not have police officers. That is just fact. Now, do we want our police officers responding to every incident that involves a homeless person or a mentally ill person? No, we actually can stand up different departments, different personnel to respond to those people that frankly would be a lot cheaper, would be better trained to do it. But the answer isn't to close shutter police departments. That is not going to work. What happens is when you have all of this rhetoric it really stands in the way of actually getting real reform work done. No question. So in the mayor's race, so LA definitely has, I mean, every every city I think right now has a lot of issues. LA has got its own issues. I know you're a big supporter of Karen Bass. I'd love to hear a little bit about the LA race and your views. This is a very interesting race. The city of LA put in campaign financing reform to try and even the playing field. So the max maximum contribution to a candidate is $1,500 during a primary and $1,500 during the general election. And so the most money that has ever been raised in the history of LA mayor's races from the primary through the general had been under $10 million. And that was a very competitive race about 10 years ago. Karen in the traditional fundraising space, raised a decent amount of money. She raised almost $5 million in the primary. She had an opponent, however, who's self-funded. He's a billionaire. And he spent $40 million, $40 million. So that totally upset the playing field. Now, the good news is, despite the fact that he really over-dominated commercials and radio, the advertising... She was able to spend enough money to actually get out her message, which was when you talk about dealing with the homeless crisis here, it's a crisis of how real solutions around, you know, no one person can solve this problem. The city of L.A. can't solve it on its own. You need county help. You need state help. You need federal help. Karen is, you know, she came out of the state government where she was speaker She's obviously been a congressperson. She knows everybody at every level of government. She knows how to build consensus. She knows how to bring people together. She knows how to get it done. Like in every city around the country, crime is increasing in Los Angeles. And again, she's got smart, reasonable solutions. She has an opponent whose solution is, we just need to hire more police officers and we need to give them more power to go and do what they do. First of all, it's not even feasible. Policing is not exactly the most attractive profession right now. Talk about why, and it's it's complicated. So the only way you can hire a lot more police officers is if you significantly lower the standards of who you're hiring. And I don't think anybody think think that's a good idea. So you know, it's really about real feasible solutions to solving real world problems, as opposed to slogans and and someone who's just able to spend a lot of money and hopefully confuse people about 
what the other person stands for and, and what you've done your entire life, including being a pro-life Republican. I was actually with Karen also this past weekend. She said two things I thought were really interesting. She said, one, first day, she's declaring a state of emergency so she can actually try to go do something about the homelessness problem. She also, though, said that just the red tape and the bureaucracy around how you can help the homeless population is so difficult. For instance, before you can take somebody from the streets and get them into a shelter, you need ID. And she's like, okay, so you have all these people, they have no ID. So what do you do now? You have to go spend weeks and weeks and weeks to get them ID. Like, why are we not just putting them in the shelter and then figuring it out? And so your point about common sense solutions and thoughts, I thought it was very impressive. Yeah. I mean, her strategy of declaring it a state of emergency and getting that also done on the state level will really be able to cut a lot of the red tape. And that's the reason why we're not seeing more affordable housing being built. There's still so many barriers in place to actually getting things done. We've had some ballot initiatives where the taxpayers have stepped up and said, yeah, we're willing to fund solutions here. Of course, you run into NIMBYism problems. They're willing to fund the solution as long as it's not, not in their neighborhood. Everybody wants a housing built, but then no one wants it built anywhere near them. So there's all those kinds of challenges, your typical building codes and all of those issues that if we were able to successfully declare a state of emergency on a city, county, and statewide level, we'd be able to cut through a lot of that red tape. And I think that's the only way we really, really make progress here. All right. So let's go back in time a little bit. So where'd you grow up? Talk a little bit about that and how you think that that led to where you've gotten in life, which is incredibly successful lawyer, incredibly successful in politics, huge philanthropist. Talk a little bit about your upbringing and how you think that that influenced you. Well, I grew up in New Jersey, very blue collar, blue collar area. My dad basically worked two full-time jobs. He was a fireman and a gardener. So I spent a lot of my free time with him cutting people's grass and <laughs> doing their gardening. Hard work was something I saw every day. My dad was something that was absolutely required of me from a very young age. If I wanted a new pair of sneakers, I had to earn the money to go get it, you know, even at 10, 11 years old. So for me, it was always, if there was something I wanted, I had to figure out a way to, to make money to go get it. I always early on thought like, okay, I can make a decent amount of money cutting this rich person's house, but how do I get in that house? So I'm the person hiring somebody to come and cut the grass. And education was the obvious path to doing that. I was never a stranger of hard work. I do think in a weird way, I was a, been a beneficiary of imposter syndrome, which is basically a feeling that you don't belong, that you're not good enough. But coming up from a household where you know, my father didn't even graduate from high school, and I remember getting to law school and looking around, everybody you know, had gone to these Ivy League schools, and I just felt like, oh my God, like what am I doing here? So I remember going home after first semester thinking that I don't know if I'm going to be going back. And no one was more surprised than me when I got my first semester grades and I had done really, really well. And now it's because I really worked way harder than anybody else and way harder than I actually needed to. Right. <laughs> but I never felt comfortable. I didn't leave those exams thinking I had done well. I was really like legitimately worried. And when I got my grades, I was like, oh, wow, OK, I guess I actually belong here. And then when I moved to California to get into the uh, into the entertainment business, it was the same thing I, I mentioned earlier that like I'm ne I'm not I've not been afraid of being uncomfortable. 
And a big part of the reason why I came out here was almost a challenge to myself because I'd grown up in New Jersey, about a half hour outside of New York City, went to Rutgers undergrad, which was where I grew up, exact town that I grew up in, to NYU Law, which was a half an hour away. I was super comfortable in that environment. And I had a job offer in LA and no one thought I would take it. Everybody was like, all your friends are here. Your family is here. And in a weird way, it was like a challenge to myself. Am I willing to move 3000 miles across the country in an age before, you know, when it costs money to make a long distance phone call, there was no email, no texting. And it just felt like a challenge. And I just said, I'm going to do it. I didn't know a single person in California other than the people I had summer clerk with the summer before at the law firm I worked at. And I just took that work ethic that I had at 10 years old cutting grass next to my dad and showed up to work early every day. Big part because I didn't really know. I didn't have a big social network. (laughs) Worked late every night, worked a lot on the weekends and just grinded and learned and you know, next thing you know, you wake up one day and it's like, oh, wow, look at look at where I am. <laughs> one of the things that I've been paying a lot of attention to is the difference, in, you know, how generations are looking at, especially the younger generation and something you just said, because I was the same way. Law school, first year, worked harder than I've ever worked in my life and probably harder than I needed to, but it all paid off. And this generation, sometimes I worry a little bit about, are they willing to dig in and grind? And do they realize how good it feels after you've spent that time grinding and working and worrying sometimes and not sure and imposter syndrome and everything else? And then you sit back and you go, wow, right? Look what I've accomplished because of all that hard work. And it's the only way you're going to actually accomplish things. So I'm, I'm definitely going to pass along your story to a lot of people because I think that it's especially young people, maybe my kids too. All right, your clients. And I don't want you to tell me favorite versus not favorite. You work with people that when they walk out of a hotel, like they get mobbed, right? They walk into a restaurant, people are like staring at them and they're just your friends and the, your clients and people you work with. Any story of celebrity that you can think of just off the top of your head that's meaningful, interesting, anything? That- Sometimes I really feel like Forrest Gump because I've had so many fascinating moments in my life. I'm a huge boxing fan. I used to spend a lot of time boxing in my spare time. I still do it from time to time. When I started at my last firm, they had just started representing Mike Tyson. And it was this was after he had bit Holyfield's ear and was relicensing him. I was like, hey, I'm a huge boxing fan. Love to be a part of the team, which then led to me really being the point person on the team for the next decade. From that moment, all the way through all of his fights to Lennox Lewis. And so, I mean, I've traveled all over the world with him and just was in some incredible situations with him and one-on-one situations and and tons of story. I remember representing Oprah Winfrey and sitting on her porch and her bringing me some iced tea as we're sitting on her porch talking about what she should do next in her career. And it was definitely like a moment like I am, Oprah Winfrey cares what I have to say about what she should be doing in her life. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, an iconic moment was meeting with President Obama in the Oval Office for the election, imminently before the Hillary and Donald Trump election, where we felt pretty confident Hillary was going to win, but a little nervous and talking about his next chapter. I've had a few of these moments over the course of my life and career where I've you know, had to pinch myself and be like, I'm just this kid who used to mow people's grass in New Jersey. <laughs> 
Except all those people are sitting there being like, uh, I've got the most important decision to make in my life right now. And I got to call Matt Johnson. So <laughs> you got that. They're telling the same stories about you. All right. We ask every guest three quick questions. Tell me about something that's been on your mind lately. It could be a book, a movie, an idea, a quote, anything you've been fixated on. I'm really fixated, honestly, on the state of, of our country and where I think democracy is really at significant risk. I never thought in the United States that I would be worried about free and fair elections. You know, obviously, you know, there's always issues with voting rights and, you know, they're never totally free and never totally fair. But the fact that we have with this North Carolina case that's about to be you know, that's going to be, I'm sure will be decided in a very anti-democratically way. And you look at who these secretaries of states are likely to be in these swing states or could be in these swing states. We could very well win the election, win the popular vote in these states and have state legislatures overthrow it. No question, like that is what they are trying to do. So that's very much on my mind. Yeah, it should be on all our minds. All right, second one. Give us a hot take. What's something you believe that a lot of people would disagree with? The Lakers are going to win a championship next year. <laughs> <laughs> I you're right. I think a lot of people disagree with that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Lastly, who is someone you'd love to hear as a guest on Word on the Sea Street? Well, I'd love to hear Corey, Corey Booker. He's always fantastic. I love listening to him speak. He's so smart and knowledgeable. Bob Chapek would be interesting to hear from. Reed Hastings would be interesting to hear from. Maverick Carter, super interesting. Do you know Maverick? He's LeBron James's partner. He, the way he has built Spring Hill and their clients of mine have, has been incredibly impressive. Adam McKay talking about climate change would be really interesting. You know who would be really interesting to, to talk to is Dwayne Johnson. I would not be surprised if at a point in time he runs for office. Really? Okay. That's one we're going to hit on. All right, Matt, thank you for joining us. Appreciate all that you've done for C Street as a member of the Board of Advisors and your friendship. And thank you for being on. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really impressed with what you're building. And we, I know we see very much in common in the world and how you can do well and do good at the same time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Word on the C Street. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review, and share with friends. You can reach us at info at thecstreet.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecstreet underscore NYC.